This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. Write Answers, a production of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and today we've got a really good one for you. Author, poet, teacher, consultant, Laura Van Proyen was a guest, and we'll get to it in just a second. But first, we're going to share a poem read to you by Laura Van Proyen from her book, Francis of the Widerfield. Here it is. The Calumet Region. Truth at my brother's oil change shop is few customers. Beauty is the woman who drives her car over the pit, accidentally steps on the gas instead of the brake, pinning a man to her hood, shattering his back through the window. Beauty can be broken, can be a crumbling hospital like St. James where I was born in the hallway because the doctor was too slow. Of that story, my mother can laugh, But birthing my brother, she was knocked out against her will with gas. She woke to find bruises all over her baby's head. Truth means that the doctor's names are not part of the story. That after years of telling and retelling, my mother sees what she can bear. A small hurt thing that needs her. Like the town she'll never leave where people talk with a harsh nasal south side A and say milk instead of milk, where beauty has something to do with highway noise, with grass breaking through the cracks, with the kicked in door on a foreclosed home where someone left the windows open and let the house fill with rain. So in addition to writing books of poetry, Laura has also written a teaching book with Gretchen Bernabe called Text Structures from Poetry, and she runs a publishing imprint called Next Page Press. Um, One of its current books is Ricochet Script by Alexandra Vandekamp, and I got to um, attend a virtual book launch in which Alexandra read some of her poetry from the book, and it is awesome. After our interview, Laura also mailed me a copy of one of the other books that they've published, and it's called Glow by Anne Hudson. And oh my gosh, that book shook me to my core. It is poetry, and it's a book about radium and Marie Curie, and about how radium became popular as part of a health craze in the mid-19th century, and how it played a major role in the medical field, and how it was used in -in glow-in-the-dark painted watches. And it's about the people who painted those. I mean, it's tragic and amazing. And you've got to get this book. You've got to get all of the Next Page Press books. You've got to get her book with Gretchen Bernabe. They're all so, so good and so smart. Anyway, let's get to the interview. This is my talk with Laura Van Proyen. a parent and I was my earlier work was written around 
young children. So having a schedule was paramount. I was doing those things like getting up at 4.30 and 5 in the morning and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. The way that my life is structured now does not require that. So, you know, our, our lives evolve, our family situations evolve, our jobs change. So one of the things I'm really trying to harness now are longer swaths of unscheduled time. So um, because I've learned also, if, you, if your audience is not aware or if you are not aware that certain things like artist residencies exist, I know there was a moment in time I didn't know that existed. And as soon as I learned of them, I thought, really? So um, I'm able to say yes to opportunities like this in a way that I wasn't, so there was a big long stretch of time where I really couldn't get away for two weeks. But now I might be able to get away for two weeks or three. And that even if you don't have young kids or you don't have a lot of circumstances in your life that you think, oh, I should be able to write at home because I don't have so many distractions. Even if that's your reality, I've learned that going away for uninterrupted time where someone is willing to house you and in the best cases feed you um, and your whole job for a few weeks is to do your work. It's changed the trajectory of my work and it's made me think of how I might be able to build in or protect unscheduled time in my life, even if that's a Saturday or a Sunday. I haven't achieved that yet, but just recently I spent um, a stretch of time at the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. So I was reminded, like I have a recent reminder that my work can grow at a much faster and it's not about productivity either. I, I want to make that clear, but the, the um, continuous reading, writing, when I go to sleep, wake up again to my work, the momentum is amazing when you have that. And those are gifts. Those aren't things, that's not my everyday life. But if you can manage to do one of those every couple of years, mm-hmm. you could be reminded that oh, our world moves at a very fast pace. And maybe that one hour that I'm able to do at home when I impose a schedule upon myself is great and necessary for the working around jobs and family. But I really recommend as often as feasible to try these situations where you see the trajectory of growth in a whole different way. It feels like, this the idea of a residency or setting aside time or protect protecting unscheduled time i'm trying to draw some i'm always trying to draw connections between what writers do and what we do in school and mm-hmm. i i was wondering this morning like one of the things i was thinking about is you know school i don't i didn't have a great writing teacher every single year but every single year i w- i just remember being in that desk having to write a stupid essay about something I didn't care about. And then halfway into the essay, I'm like on a roll and it, things are, I'm starting to feel some kind of flow. And mm-hmm. I was thinking like, it seems like what school does, whether we are being great teachers or not, is we're providing 
a schedule where there's nothing else you can do but write. <laughs> yes. Yes. And read. And re- um, yeah. You know, when I was teaching high school, I've only ever taught on a block schedule. So I had these, you know, hour and a half classes, but my students came to know that when they came to Ms. Van's class, we were going to start just about every single class with silent sustained reading. So SSR was just a part of it. And it would always be at least 10 to 15 minutes. And that, um, and they could read, I was also, (laughs) they could read whatever they wanted to. There was, there were no, and I encouraged them to abandon books they didn't like. No, you never had to start a book and finish it because life is short. If you're reading something you don't like, stop reading it because the whole thing was starting like, let's love reading. Mm -hmm. And if there was a student and there always was at one point or another who would just forget their book and choose a book off the shelf, a different book every single day. And clearly they weren't invested in the process. I'd have a talk with them and try to find out and maybe recommend other books you're not going to win every student over to this process, but I saw over and over the students who got to the end of the year and said, miss, I hated reading, but now I like reading. And, you know, there were systems in place to document things to, to make administrators happy and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I found that to be the most valuable thing that then could offer conversation and context about writing, I had to get the kids reading. You know, you, you don't just pop down at a desk and suddenly you're a writer if you have no relationship with language. Yeah, so it's like breathing in, breathing out. You need Yeah, fill, filling the well, yeah. That's right. So what role, I think I wanna dig, let's go into the education part a little bit more. Um, sure. What do you think school could be doing better? I mean, I know that not at that school, I can't treat school like a monolith because it's like a, it's a, what's the word? A spectrum. School's a spectrum. Yeah. Not every school, some schools are great. Some schools have mixed. Some schools have troublesome elements. But overall, like I, you wrote a book because you, or you co-wrote a book because you wanted to have an impact on what school could be doing differently or maybe mm-hmm. better, or here's a new idea. What do you feel like school could be doing better to nurture young writers? Well, it's been a little while since I have taught in secondary ed full-time, which is um, I never really taught outside of being a a guest, a visiting writer, things like that with the lower grades, lower elementary grades. But I am a parent of a current high school student who's just at the tail end of that And just as a general rule, what I see among her and her peers is sometimes I think that they're just driven by data and status and grades and class rank and all of these things that we know just destroy curiosity. And I would say the best thing to do is to try to, well, when I was a teacher and now just as a human in the world, I try to stay curious because if I'm not curious about something, I'm not very interested in learning more. So just in every subject, in every grade, fostering that curiosity. And 
in terms of writing, giving students as much choice and autonomy as possible with their instruction. Um, you know, choice and autonomy doesn't mean lack of structure and it doesn't mean lack of understanding of rules or what makes good writing or the rest of that, but um, finding ways like the book that I did co-write with Gretchen Burnaby, she has a whole series of books. I just got in on the poetry one because that's my, you know, that's where we met. And so that's really, it's based on poetry, which speaking about poetry specifically, a lot of people feel afraid of it. And I think that that's because somewhere along the line, somebody told them it was supposed to be hard or mysterious or complicated. And the truth of the matter is, I can't say it enough. There are not hidden meetings in poems. There are not. If poems are doing their job, there's clarity. It might be complicated. It might be multi-layered and ambiguous, but it's not hidden. If anyone's talking about hidden meanings in poetry, please stop that business because that means that your kids think they're not smart enough to see it because they, they, they're looking for the hidden meaning and can't see it because there is no hidden meaning. So any good writing of any genre, I believe, I mean, maybe that's, that's tricky to say a big, broad overstatement. However, in my experience, clarity that comes through the language, the syntax, all of those things, it's clarity. And when it's really complicated or, or multi-layered or ambiguous, that doesn't mean it's hidden. It just means you might need to understand a little more deeply what's happening in there. And you should, I think, be able to, in most cases, go back to the text to find what evidence is there to support whatever is happening. And I think that, um, of course, especially with poetry, our opinions matter. And when I don't think we should ever shut down students, even if we can see they're really misreading a text, um, help them find the evidence and answers to more deeply formulate their understanding about what they see, because you can misread poems. It's not open for inter open interpretation for everyone, no matter what you, you know, there can be evidence there, like, no, the speaker actually, you know, is talking about someone who died. <laughs> like, here's the evidence, <laughs> you know, it does, it's not, you know, going to a carnival or whatever. So, you know, there's ways to misread things, but then there's also ways to, to guide. Um, so I don't know, I feel like I just went off on a big old tangent on your question, sorry. Well, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. It's a podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I mean, you're, you're hitting on a lot of amazing things that I want to dig a little bit deeper into. I want to take a couple of steps back into the curiosity element that you mentioned just a, a minute earlier. Um, what does curiosity look like for you as a writer? Or what could it look like in a classroom for writers? Fostering a place where questions are, it's safe to ask questions, where, um, like I said, we as, as teachers know that maybe poems can be misread. Mm -hmm. But what I would feel terrible about is if 
any student felt like they had to be afraid of misreading a poem in a classroom that I was teaching in, that mm -hmm. they would they would say, oh, she's going to shoot this down. Or, you know, so remaining curious, I think, is about questioning, but then mm -hmm. also following up your questions with, with interrogation. Like, mm -hmm. what it, how come I looked at that line and thought it said this thing? Oh, because I don't actually know the meaning of this particular word. Mm -hmm. And I didn't bother to look it up, you know, or... Um, why, why is, you know, some scientific thing, like how do viruses grow and spread? I don't know, let's investigate that. Let's investigate these questions. So I think curiosity is about feeling safe enough. Mm -hmm. And by safety, I mean, being in a place where people won't silence you, asking questions, and then feeling compelled to move beyond the question to an investigation. Well, what you're saying really rings true to me because one of the things I'm always thinking about is how the tendency, like we're, as teachers, I feel always pulled to um, follow a deficit model, like always looking for the deficits in a student's work, always mm. looking for the problems that we have to uh, quote unquote fix. But we know that it's, we also know, we know that it's so much more important to build on a student's strengths because they will feel more, they'll feel more willing to buy in because they know, they know that you're trying to empower them and build off of the things they're good at. And it's hard to balance that when you're a teacher and it's uh, springtime and everything is insane. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking, like, I think that curiosity, I don't, I think the reason that we veer toward deficits, at least sometimes, is that we don't trust the learning process. We don't trust that people, that our students will self-correct if they're doing something that's a little bit off hmm. to your point. But to your point, again, if we can get kids curious, like, is, are there any other possibilities to what this writer's trying to say? Um, how did the writer do that? How did the writer make you feel that? How did the writer create the turn? How did the writer mm -hmm. stick the landing? If we can get kids curious, we can, it makes it easier for us to trust that they'll self-correct if there's something that they're just kind of close, but not quite there. Mm -hmm. It's so in the book that Gretchen and I put together, part of the process there is read the poem aloud. Then you read the poem aloud again. And then you actually read the poem, I can't remember exactly where this, this is in the, we read it aloud three times, but it's like at the second time, and this came, our suggestions in the book came directly out of my teaching practice and Gretchen's too. I, on the second reading aloud, have the students underline words, phrases, things that interest them that they want to discuss. So the whole conversation around the poem is driven by what they're noticing first. And in there, then you, you'll see as a teacher, oh, they're, they're actually noticing the word order, the syntax. So then you, you bring that, you know, but if I were to just stand in front of a room and say, now we'll talk about the syntax of the sentence. So starting with what they're noticing, what they're curious about bringing it to the table, 
and then helping apply the language to what they're noticing, the, the craft language, the grammatical language, all of that. But beginning with what they were curious about is generally where I feel like conversations grow. But I also want to recognize, I just really do want to put out here because I know someone listening is um, perhaps thinking, it's been a while since she's been in a classroom. And I want to say that I am standing up and applauding all of you teachers for everything that you've been through in the last couple of years, because I have never had the challenge of what you faced in moving from physical classroom to remote learning to back again and who knows what, wherever you are, what stage your school is in. So what I'm talking about here was the ideal when I was in a physical classroom pre-pandemic and your rules have all changed. So whatever you're hearing me say that can apply to where you are and what you're facing and what your students whose needs have grown and shifted and changed. Um, I just, I want, I would feel like I did a disservice if I didn't recognize everything that you all have been through and that I don't share that same experience firsthand. So thank you, first of all, thank you teachers for showing up to your jobs because the students continue to need you. I appreciate that. And I, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that as well. I, th I think that the reason I wanted to just dig into this school, the, the ugliness and then, you know, the moments of epiphany the, in the curiosity, all the good and bad is I remember I read in your school experience, I think you got asked this at least twice. Um, when did you first realize you were a writer? And the answer is, was in college. You had a special teacher who mm -hmm. created a special um, I don't, what's the word, context, experience, situation in which you could write and flourish? That's true, yes. Um, I wanted to explore that a little bit, what that environment was like, because I think that's something that we can all pull from as teachers. And then I also want to dig into why it wasn't until college that you had a teacher like that. <laughs> I wish I could answer that question. Um, well, I have know, some ideas on what we could, but could you talk about the, what that environment was like? And I know you've talked about before, could, could, would you mind sure. talking about that again? Sure. Um, so I'm first gen and my freshman year in college, where somehow I ended up making it there, you know, despite not really knowing um, all the rules, I, I made it to college. And I had just this fabulous professor who we still are in touch. She's probably, well, I don't know you ever grow tired of these shout outs, but Rita Signorelli Pappas, who you can still find out there working. Um, she had a freshman seminar, the university I attended, Valparaiso University, where, where I did my freshman year. Um, they had a requirement that all freshmen have this seminar class that who knows what the others were like. Mine was called Creating Selves, which was just pivotal for an 18-year-old who had no idea what myself was. And we read a variety of texts that shaped my life, which were like Raina Maria Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, 
um, Dog Hammerskold's markings, and 84 Charing Cross Road. And then another one that I just recently remembered, The Measure of My Days, which would resonate with me much more now than it would have when I was 18. That was my least favorite when I was 18, but would be very good now. It's an elderly, a memoir of an elderly woman taking account of her days. So Rita, Professor Pappas, um, we had to keep a journal where we had to extract a quote from whatever we were reading and respond to it in any way we liked. And that was, that began my practice of journaling because I found that with that freedom of choice, like we were talking about before, I chose whatever quotes were interesting to me. And then it was just writing personal accounts of how I responded to them. The only wrong answer was not filling your pages in your journal. And so, but she wrote little things in the margins that were so encouraging to me, like, you have the mark of a writer, I think was one of them. And I just couldn't believe it because I had grown up in, um, with two wonderful parents, but neither of whom had gone to college, so didn't really know how to direct this. And who valued, they valued education to a point, but they valued um, like church and morality and all of these other things in terms of that was the most important thing in shaping who they wanted their children to be, not so much striving for education and higher education. So being in this realm where I suddenly realized that people valued thinking <laughs> valued like questioning um, and valued something I might have to say just off the cuff about what my observations were and the connections I was making. I didn't realize that these were high level skills at the time and never before that time was any of that really honed in for me. So it changed everything for me that semester. It seems like it was treated not like a high level skill, but just like something that we do here. Yeah, this is what, you know, this is what the requirements are and do them. And I was just delighted because I thought, really, this is what college is about. I mean, that class in particular, I had no struggles with some of the others. Um, I did as a freshman find myself in another, my English professor, where we had to write the straight up essays about things. Mm -hmm. I was in her office every week because I thought I had the skills to be at college. And I realized suddenly that I felt a little behind mm. when I got there. So, um, but I also found it within myself that I really wanted to work toward that. I learned, I valued it, but I had to seek a lot of extra help on my own in the beginning. So it's, the recipe I'm, I'm adding to the recipe as we talk, it's read a lot, write a lot, get encouragement and help. Yeah. I mean, at the same way that you asked me my initial question about seeing myself as a real writer. And I said, maybe the persistence and longevity and finding your people. When I was 18 years old, my people were my professors because uh -huh. I, and the smartest girl who lived on my hall in the dorm who would read my papers too and offer me feedback. 
So I think that somehow instinctively, I, I knew I needed help. And I knew that um, if, I guess I trusted that when they said they really wanted to help me that I could go to them. And I, so I did. So I don't want to sound like I'm shitting on the profession in any way, shape <laughs> or form. Cause I, I really think that while we need to have light in children's lives, we also need some kind of dying of the light to rage against. And I think that all of the school experience, like I want to, you know, lessen some of the bad stuff, obviously, but all of the school experience, good and bad shapes who we are. So I'm, I wanted to dig into a little, not a lot, just a little bit into the pre-college school life that you experienced. Uh, do you remember a moment when you were younger in school where you felt drawn toward writing, even if it wasn't like the thing? That was just through my own. Um, I would you know, sit around and write in diaries thinking I had really deep thoughts and then I would hide them thinking I was going to be, I don't know, just discovered or something. But in terms of my actual schooling, so a little context, I did not go to public schools. I went to parochial schools that were very, the church life and my home life were integrated into my school life. So they were church affiliated schools where um, they were the denomination of the church I grew up in is the Christian Reformed Church. So these were all CRC kids who went to these churches and their parents paid tuition and we all went there and there was a commonality in thought among the parents that they wanted a church-based, biblical-based education for their children. So that was our main focus in a lot of things. And it's not as if we didn't have an emphasis on academics as well, but I think I got a little too busy thinking about the ways I was dissatisfied with this church-based education that I, whatever was being offered to me, I probably was suspect of. So I may have been as much of the problem as my teachers not recognizing my talents because I don't think I opened myself up very much to be recognized for my talents. I think I was recognized for other things. Um, so I don't wanna place all of it on the responsibility of that. I think I just grew up in a unique situation that if I had gone to the public school system may have been a very different experience because I was in this homogeneous group of kids who were mostly Dutch with the shared church experience. And um, so it, it was easy to not fit in there if you were even just a few degrees off from from uh, buying into all of the things. And also mm -hmm. the art, the arty kids, the literary kids, um, you know, some of those things just like are on the fringe of various rebellious attitudes that don't always fit that mold. And so maybe aren't encouraged either. 
you know, it makes me think about a stand-up comedian named Kyle Kinane. I'm going to, I won't be able to do the joke, but he says something like, um, in order to form a punk band, you need an adult trying to crush your dreams. <laughs> yeah. Like you can't feel it in the moment and it's trying to crush a kid's dreams is not a good thing. <laughs> Let me be clear. Right. But this is why I wanted to ask the question. I think that a lot of good writing can come from like these chips on our shoulders that are put there in mm-hmm. our in our childhood and like feeling like we have something to prove and then when you finally get that teacher it's almost like it was bottled up and ready to explode yeah well and that that freshman seminar did change my life but it also wasn't immediate it wasn't like i suddenly said now i'm a writer i i carried on trying to find my way. I thought I was gonna be a visual artist. Mm. And then when I transferred from Valparaiso University to Purdue, it actually was in visual communication design that I was you know, gonna study. And then it was there that I had a creative writing workshop with the poet Marianne Baruch. And so you see, there's a, there's a lot, we can all go back and trace mm our histories, our lineages, our experiences. It wasn't one thing. That was the first pivotal thing was Rita's workshop. And then I got to Purdue and had another pivotal thing. And then um, one thing that I, I think that has always been very meaningful to me is keeping my relationships. So, you know, when I left Valparaiso, I, was, I started writing letters to Rita. So, you know, I mean, I have some old, old correspondences. And after I left Purdue, I would see Marianne at conferences or things like that. So I would always, I just always felt compelled to thank people and to do what I could to remain in conversation with them. And so, um, and I think that's probably true just interpersonal relationships have always meant a great deal to me. So that's when I find those friends that I really want to be with, um, I like to keep them close. It makes me think about what uh, Sir Ken Robinson said in one of his uh, books about the importance of finding your tribe in the creative process. Like that is one of the pillars on which creativity can thrive. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you found tribes, you created um, this a group in San Antonio where you have the, this group of people who can encourage each other, give each other feedback, keep the process going. But you said something a second ago about being originally wanting to do visual arts. And one, I do judge books by their covers. And Francis of the Wider Field has like one of the most exquisite looking covers. And oh, is that, thank did, you. Was that part, did, did you play a role in the art design for the cover? I did. Um, that image that you see on the cover, I went scouring the internet for trying to figure out what I might like, because working with Lily Poetry Review Books is wonderful, and anyone who would like to read contemporary poetry, that's a great place to go. They gave me a lot of, like, let's have a conversation about the cover. So I wasn't sure, because Francis. And if we talk about the poems, Francis is not necessarily a literal um, person. And I didn't want in any way 
to try to pinhole what someone might think Francis is. So the image for the cover, I found this sculpture online by the artist, um, Christine K. Harris. Mm. And so I just reached out to her. I sent an email because I found this on her website. I was Googling things like quirky folk dolls. And, you know, because I kind of had this idea of Francis as feminine, but is also kind of this ethereal, otherworldly entity. So when I found Christine's sculpture that has these roots and is sort of mythical and the body almost looks like scales and there's vines and this fern, giant fern, halo of fern hair. Mm -hmm. I thought this to me feels like a version of Francis that, you know, you can't pinpoint exactly. Is this a real person? Is this a goddess? Is this a tree? Is this what? Mm -hmm. And I just reached out to her and asked her for permission to use her image. And she said, yes. And I loved that it had a front and a back. And I asked specifically to have that front and back on the cover. So it was continuous that way. And it's perfect. Like in the very first poem, looking for you in the street, I said to the crabapple tree, you are Francis. So, I mean, like, and there's like that pantheistic kind of vibe that it taps into as well. Yeah. So I, that was like, that was my clunky transition into talking about the book. No, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And thank you for mentioning the cover because I, I just, um, I fell in love with that sculpture when I saw it. So I'm happy it's speaking to others too. I live in the city and I would, I did that thing where I carried it around almost if it's, as if it were like an accessory. <laughs> it was so nice. Um, so like I read somewhere that this book's the seed for this book maybe started 10 years before it was a book, something like that. That's but it, true. It feels yeah. like it was written all to be one book. Was that something that happened like as you um, curated and put things together or was that something that you were thinking about at some point in the process early on? Uh, my process is sort of messy. So um, the first poem was written more than 10 years ago, and the most recent poem was written just a month or so before this, I had to give the final version of this to my publisher. So what happens with my process generally, I'd love to change this, but I don't know how, is I just write, and I write poems, and because poetry is my genre, it is like, I don't know how novelists do it, because I just don't have a plan that far in advance. I'll write poems and poems and start gathering poems and suddenly there will be 20 poems and I think well these are actually speaking to each other but it might take a couple of years to see those connections and threads. The Francis poems were a little bit extraordinary that I two or three or four times a year I will sign up to do something that's called the grind which is basically one of my um, classmates where I went to grad school started this and it's become just this online group where you write a poem a day for a month. You sign up to do a poem a day for a month. And I'll do that probably three or four times a year just to generate material. And so one year 
I did it. And those Francis poems started to emerge in one of those one months where I was writing every day. And I was like, what is this? What's happening? And so that was pretty cool. And then all of a sudden I had this clutch of Francis poems and they have been in like a section of their own. And then they were a chat book and then they were. And finally, when Lily Poetry Review books took my book, it had a different name when they accepted it. The Francis poems were in a section of their own. And I had a conversation with my publisher who said, tell me about Francis. So I did. I was like, well, I see Francis actually is the, the whole idea. That's the thread behind the, like, I feel like Francis is the overarching entity and spiritual touchstone in weird ways that help create a context around these family, like more literal family-ish poems, you know, where there's a mom or where there's a dad or where there's, Francis is none of those things, you know, Francis is something else. So it was through that conversation with her that we found the title of the book that mm-hmm. uh, I rearranged the entire manuscript before it went to press and she liked it. So I decided to disperse Francis throughout and it changed, it changed things. Now I feel really happy about that. I'm really glad that I had a publisher who wanted to have those conversations and work with me. Or, I mean, she just let me do the work. So, you know, I did that, but it's a process. It's not like I started out. <laughs> I'm glad that you said it reads like it was a whole because there were a lot of very deliberate choices and poems that didn't make the cut. And then some that surprised me that um, came back or were written in late stages. And it, in part, and you have like, I love the way you decided to disperse it, disperse Francis throughout, because it also sets up like a narrative arc. You even have like recurring characters like Angel, the repair person, (laughs) and then it doesn't get fixed and comes back later. So all these little elements feel like a story arc. So it sounds like revision is playing a major role in the process as well. I mean, we knew we would get there, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So like, let me go back through my notes here. We have um, friendship, encouragement, feedback, write a lot, read a lot, and now revise a lot. So is there anything else you can tell us about what what it looks like when you're revising? I mean, I know that's a really big question because revising means so many different things, but maybe we could just give a piece of it. Sure. Well, one of the questions that we were just addressing is putting together a collection of poems. That's a different kind of revising. That's trying to envision an entire manuscript as a piece of cohesive art. So that's a lot of like ordering of the poems, seeing how they speak to each other. But the question that I think you're probably looking for a little bit more is in an individual piece of writing, how do you make those choices say in a poem? or an essay, or a talk, Uh, you know, when you're delivering a a talk, you have a certain way that you want to engage with the audience. And so revision, I always am speaking aloud, no matter what I'm writing, because I'm thinking about how the things sound, how the words sound, how the pace goes, what the punctuation is doing, 
Um, if it's an essay, it's, you know, you have to make sure that there's a logical flow that's happening from one point to the next point to the next point, and that you haven't left out chunks of material or do you need to resequence things? With poems, it's a lot of play with, with pacing, language. So I just read aloud. Sometimes revision is really easy and sometimes it's really, really painful. I have a few poems now that I just can't find my way. I can't get my finger on it. I've been going round and round. I really want them to work, but they're not working yet. So, so I stick them back in the file and return to it another day. And then some things I, I'm doing a little bit more revising as I'm composing right now, which I think for me has come with experience to be able to anticipate where things might be going. And then I realize that I have to revise lines as they go, or I might get a bunch of raw material down. And then um, instead of putting that away, that that's actually back to that idea of the sustained unscheduled time is being able to maybe write a draft, step away for an hour and come back when it's still relatively fresh and then see what you have there and revise as you continue to compose. So beautiful. Yeah. So, so let's, I wanted to bring the interview to a close by talking about play. Mm -hmm. um, the other night you graciously inter uh, invited me to Next Page Press's book launch of Alexandra Vandekamp's book, Rick Ricochet Script. And she, Veronica, the, one of the moderators was talking and Veronica about- Veronica Golos. Yes, thank you. And Alexandra, we're talking about how sometimes just playing around with a form can be the genesis of content. Like uh, she was talking about how she was wanted to experiment and play around with writing a guzzle at one point. Mm -hmm. And I know that from reading some of your interviews that play can play an important role in your process as well. So can you just talk about some of the ways that play is important to the writing process? Yeah, um, I think like if we're not having some fun along the way, what are we doing? Um, I think play takes all different kinds of forms. I, and play with the writing process, I don't even think it's isolated to writing. I think it's, um, I, I like movement. And um, you know, I go to a, a studio here in San Antonio where I do some movement classes. They're kind of dance, but kind of like dance is, is um, <laughs> a liberal word for what we really do. But that is part of the play. Um, if you like to throw around paint, that's part of the play. I think play in all its forms, like if you're finding your writing to be stagnant, get up and go play something else, play guitar, play, 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 whatever, uh, because all of it's connected. And then when we get to our work, our writing work, if, if you see it as work or just play, um, finding new ways of looking at things. If you find yourself writing the same stuff over and over, then maybe you impose a few different rules upon yourself. Like, 
okay. I mean, I did that after my second book came out. Um, the second book, my book called Our House Was on Fire, there's a lot of like, there's husband and daughters and birds. These are pretty prevalent. And so I put a mandate on myself, like no more husbands, no more daughters, no more birds. So in Francis of the Wider Fields, you're going to find dogs. You're going to find like other stuff. Um, I don't even think there's a husband in there. And daughters do appear occasionally, but, you know, they, it took a long time before I let them back in. So giving the self some guidelines to just play around with, to see if you can do, can you write a poem that's filled with geckos and snicker bars or whatever, you know, I mean, who knows what, just finding new ways to think about things and enjoy your life. Like, I think that that's like, if you're not happy with what you're doing in your writing, well, who said that? If you, ugh, I'm going to, I'm not even going to try to paraphrase, but enjoy your life. Like if you're bored, then stop being so boring and do something that is fun and interesting to you. If you're finding your work to not bring you any joy, then, you know, when I do that, I go roller skating. That's what I like to do. So, and I'm always reminded, I'm just trying to not fall because I think that would be bad for me at this moment in time. Like, you know, somebody would call me out and be like, why are you on my kids? Probably mom, what are you doing? Um, but just finding that those things that might bring you some joy, and then you can get serious in the revision you can get. It's not just like you throw down everything and it's all just play. If you, you know, you'll end up revising, you'll end up doing those things. If you couldn't already tell, I love talking to writers and reverse engineering their process to figure out how could we do more of this kind of thing in the classroom. And I'm so thankful to Laura Van Proyen for opening up her process to us and talking about her new book, which is just brilliant. You, you must get it. I have links to it in the show notes. Speaking of links in the show notes, I have links to all of Laura's work and her publishing press in the show notes. And if you want to see Laura Van Proyen in person, she will be at Miami University doing um, a reading on Friday, July 30th. The Miami's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing Program is hosting an event, and I've included a link to that. Guess where? The show notes. Also in the show notes, you can find links to ways that you can become involved with the Ohio Writing Project. OWP offers tons and tons of learning opportunities during the summer, and a lot of them have already been underway, but there are still a few that you could sign up for. There's the food writing genre study class. It's three credits, and it's a hybrid class. There's the supporting and enriching literacy for ELL students, and that's an online class. There's the designing writing literacy toolbox for elementary classroom. That one's on campus. And there's Inside the Essay, Rethinking Essay Writing, and that one is a hybrid class. There are so many ways that you can be involved with the Ohio Writing Project, and all you have to do is check the show notes. All right, thank you so much for tuning in to Write Answers.